Welcome to episode 31 of the Patient Safety Podcast. This series is brought to you with the support of W21C in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Calgary. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Selena Au, an intensivist in the Department of Critical Care Medicine in Calgary. Selena completed her master's in quality improvement and patient safety at the University of Toronto and has a focus on patient and family-centered care. In this podcast, she shares the tragic story of Josie King, which highlights the importance of patient and family-centered care and the role that it can play in patient safety. As with all of our episodes, more information about Selena and links to any references mentioned in the episode are available on our website at www.patientsafetypodcast.com. And now, to discuss patient and family-centered care, Selena Ao. My interest in patient family-centered care, or PFCC, really stems from my role in the Department of Critical Care Medicine in Calgary, where many of my most meaningful conversations happen with families before I even have a chance to speak with the patient themselves. My current research relates to family communication practices in the ICU, which has many factors, timeliness being one of them, but also looking at the mode of communication. So this could be during daily patient rounds, or it could be in a more formal setting, like a sit-down meeting with family members. And then how do we actually know we're doing a good job? So one part of my research is looking at how to best capture family satisfaction and then how to actually react to the data. Because family satisfaction is a very amorphous and very interesting topic that's not just looking at whether or not we're meeting family needs, but it's also a family component to it in that they bring their own expectations into the mix. But today, my hope is actually to focus on PFCC, not just in the ICU, but in a more broader scale hospital practice. The purpose of this podcast is firstly to create better understanding of what patient family-centered care is, and then secondly, to describe PFCC strategy or a specific one and the relationship that it could have with patient safety. To first define what patient and family-centered care is, the Picker Institute has defined PFCC as improving healthcare through the eyes of the patient, whereas a more detailed definition that came out through Crossing the Quality Chasm, published by the Institute of Medicine in 2001, is providing care that is respectful and responsive to individual patient preferences, needs, and values, and ensuring that the patient values guide all clinical decisions. Now, there's many more definitions out there. Some of them are more detailed than others, but really inherent to all of them is that there must be respect and dignity for the patient and family, and there must also be a component of collaboration. The importance of patient and family-centered care is really well illustrated by a 2011 Institute of Healthcare Improvement paper where they describe push forces or things that make the status quo uncomfortable as well as pull forces or factors that make the future attractive. 
And so push forces propelling us towards PFCC include the patient safety and consumer movement with individual patient stories, as well as the demands for increased transparency. And then healthcare reform with large organizations such as Accreditation Canada, WHO, and the IHI. Examples of forces that pull us towards PFCC or make it more attractive for us include growing evidence that it actually correlates with better outcomes. And it just makes sense. So when I get into an airplane, there's really nothing I can do to make myself safer because I'm not an expert on airline industry. But patients and families are, or at least they can become experts of their symptoms and their values and the way they use healthcare. I can say all this, but perhaps the importance of PFCC is best illustrated by sharing Josie King's story as told by her mother Sorel King in the IHI conference in 2002. In January of 2001, 18-month Josie was admitted to John Hopkins after suffering first and second degree burns from climbing into a hot bath. She healed well and within weeks was scheduled for release. And it was during Josie's time in the pediatric ICU that Sorel really got to experience healthcare and was by the side of her daughter day and night. She paid attention to everything that the nurses and the doctors said and was always quick to ask questions, so she was very involved. Josie eventually was sent down to the intermediate care floor with expectations of being sent home in a few days, and things were looking good. But one thing Sorel noticed was that change in her daughter's behavior, uh, something that was very odd. So Josie would be drink-seeking or uh, screaming for a drink whenever she would see one in the room. She would be sucking on a washcloth during bath. And there would be periods where her eyes just seemed to roll into the back of her head. And she pointed this out a few times to nursing, and she always was met with reassurance. But she did request for a doctor's assessment many times and oftentimes was just dismissed. And eventually, when an MD did see Josie, Josie was given Narcan, which is an antidote for narcotic overdose, and the doctor gave verbal orders for no more narcotics to be given. The same day that the doctor said that Josie should not be given any more narcotics, a different nurse actually came in with a syringe of methadone, which is a particularly long-acting narcotic, and Sorel voiced concern right away that narcotics were discontinued. So the nurse at that time had said that the orders had been changed and gave it anyways. And it was then that Sorel saw her daughter die of a cardiac arrest from severe dehydration and narcotic misuse. It was all human error that Josie's mother was attuned to, but she was really incapable of stopping this train of healthcare and all the potential hazards that it was carrying. So this case really highlights a few points that I'd like you to take home as a message. Firstly, the Institute of Medicine lists as one of its dimensions of quality, patient-centeredness. And while in some settings we focus on patient-centered care, as we should, the family component is particularly crucial in pediatric and critical care settings, where the patient is vulnerable simply by not being able to speak for themselves. So in the ICU, the family frequently becomes a surrogate decision maker, and they, in fact, are the voice of the patient. It's very difficult for family members if we 
want them to help make end-of-life decisions, for example, and only choose to engage them at that point. When in fact, really, they should have been part of the decision-making process throughout the patient's journey. Secondly, in the realm of patient safety, the old adage of we can only manage what we can measure rings particularly true. I'm not sure that many of our current measurement systems, such as RLS or incident report systems, or morbidity and mortality rounds, or M&Ms, capture the full picture. There is a paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine that came out in 2008 that was a study out of the Massachusetts General Hospital, where they looked at 1,000 discharge patients and compared the number of adverse events that interviewers or the reviewers could catch via patient interviews versus medical record review. And within the medical records, the reviewers found 11 serious and potentially preventable events. So that gives us 1.1%. But with patient interviews, reviewers identified an additional 21 events that were serious and preventable, so three times the rate. And a lot of these extra events were actually pre and post discharge, which often are not included in the chart. And one thing to note too was the agreement of the events identified. So we look at a statistic called Kappa was 0.33, which is low, meaning that the charts and patient stories actually capture different events. And this really alludes to the idea that patient safety is an elephant. What I mean by that is there is this fable, and you may have heard of it uh, as a child, but six blind men try to figure out what an elephant is. So they all figure this out by actually going and touching it. But the man who grabs the legs thinks of an elephant as very much like a trunk of a tree versus the guy who grabs the trunk of the elephant thinks of it like a snake. And the one who grabs the tusk thinks of a spear-like being. And then the one who touches the actual body of the elephant thinks of it as a wall, and so forth. And so we really don't know what our patient safety problems are in its full scope. And so what family eyes and ears are is that it's just another lens. And this takes me to my third point, which is that we really should be evolving past a point of thinking of the type of things we are doing to patient and families, and really thinking of how we can do things with them. They really are our partners in care. And so we can use Sorel King's story as an example. Despite Sorel's anger for what happened, she was able to establish the Josie King Foundation, and it's generated a great movement for understanding how families can play a role in the care for patients or their loved ones. In particular, Josie King's story created Condition H. And to better explain this, for those who don't work in hospital settings, there's a code that members of the healthcare team can call when the patient looks like they're going to have a pre-cardiac or pre-respiratory arrest. So when a nurse sees a patient looking particularly unwell, rather than actually waiting for them to have a cardiac arrest or code blue, they can initiate what's called a code 66 or outreach call or a medical emergency team call. What do we do if a family witnesses this? Oftentimes the family members are sitting by the patient's bedside and they can actually see the patient getting worse but how do we actually empower them to act on it? This is what Condition H at UPMC in Pittsburgh it's called. 
condition age was created out of Josie's story, and it's a hotline where families can actually activate the team or the same med team that would a nurse would be able to activate. Now, this does take me to the next point in that you can imagine that there are many of those who can critique such a method. So a healthcare provider may say, well, our MET team is really stretched out as it is. Or what if a family decides to call for every little issue? I I do have to mention that evidence just doesn't suggest this. So in LeVay's work in 2011, 25 hospitals that actually use a program similar to Condition H shows that it only gets 0 to 24 calls per year. And actually 46% of these centers have less than 3 calls per year. And many of the calls may be for something like uh, something just doesn't feel right or a communication breakdown, lack of knowledge plan. But sometimes they are calls for a noticeable change in patient condition to which the staff are not responding. But this is to stress the point that it's really an indication of safety culture. In Wikipedia, a culture you can look it up is just a word for people's way of life and the way they do things. Safety culture is an organizational atmosphere where safety and health is understood to be and accepted as the number one priority. And so if we are to say we have a safe culture, then are these zero to 24 calls per year really too much to ask? So in summary, we should be evolving past the point where we're doing things to patients and families and start doing things with them as partners. And in certain circumstances, easy examples being peds and critical care, but really it's any time a patient is unable to fully express themselves. I use the term patient and family interchangeably because family can just as well be the voice of the patient. One method of partnership is teaming up with families to increase patient safety. Patients and family lend a unique lens in that they are the experts in their symptoms and values, and none of us, no matter what our training is, can replace that. I've used the powerful story of Josie and Sorrel King as an example of the tragedy that can occur through human error in healthcare, but the accomplishments that can be gained through our partnerships with patients and families can also be profound. That was Selena Au discussing patient and family-centered care and its implications for patient safety. Again, please visit patientsafetypodcast.com to find materials referenced in this episode. You can find all of our episodes for download there or from w21c.org or you can subscribe to the series for free from iTunes. Remember, we'd love to hear from you. So please email your feedback, comments, or suggestions for our series to w21c.edu at ucalgary.ca. Thanks for listening.